Well, hey, like I said, uh, I'm so excited to be with you guys. Anytime that I get asked um, to, to preach, I, I take it as an honor and a responsibility. So I just want to open up with a quick word of prayer and just ask that, uh, man, just the Holy Spirit would speak to us today. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, it does the work. And I pray today that you would open our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, Lord God, that we would just have a clear mind to receive whatever it is that you want to do and whatever it is that you want to tell us. I pray that you would get me out of the way, Lord, that you would humble me, that you would take my words out of the people's minds this morning and that all that would be left would be you. It is your Holy Spirit who does the work. And so, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place and that you would have your way. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, we have been walking through the book of Colossians over the last five weeks. And in this book, Paul continues to draw us back to the centrality and to the identity of Christ. In chapter one, he encourages us to uh, to pursue spiritual maturity. And Pastor Matt laid out just the role and the need for spiritual fathers and mothers. In verse 15 of chapter one, Paul gives us the most beautiful Christology when he talks about the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ, instructing us that everything was created not only by him, but for Christ as well. In chapter two, he warns us of false teachings and the blending of philosophies and theologies, which may gain power and influence in our day. And last week, Pastor Matt spoke of Paul's encouragement in chapter three to set our hearts and our minds on things above and to put to death those earthly ways that can so easily entangle us. And I love at the end when he talked about the the triangle of transformation and the use of spiritual disciplines, those things that we bring forth with our own effort to enable the Holy Spirit to do something that we cannot achieve on our own. Now, within that message, Matt got to this part where he talked about when he was in college and he had these uh, scriptures, you know, printed off and laminated. And then he said, you know, my alarm would go off and I would reach for, and I couldn't help, but when he was preaching, I was like, man, please say the, the snooze button. Like, please say the snooze button. You got to relate to me, Matt. Okay, make me feel better about myself. But he was like, I reached for those scriptures and I pulled them over and I, I just saturated myself with them before my feet hit the floor. And I was like, Dad, come it, dude. Why you got to be so holy all the time, man? I mean, it kind of like bummed me out a little bit. But in all seriousness, I will say, uh, we are really, really blessed to have a pastor and teacher like Matt who not only talks about spiritual formation a lot, but actually lives it out. Um, You know, I don't know what you guys were doing at 20, but I wasn't like reaching for scriptures when my alarm went off. I don't even think I had an alarm when I was 20 years old. It was like, I'll I'll wake up when I wake up. But hey, the good news is, uh, man, today's going to be super relatable. Uh, You guys are going to feel really good when you leave here. You'd be like, Craig, talk more about your life. Uh, I need to feel better about mine. It's like opening up the Gospels, and anytime Peter opens his mouth, you're like, I'm about to feel really good about my relationship with Jesus, because Peter's about to put his foot right in his mouth. Now, 
As I said at the beginning of chapter three, uh, what Paul does is he starts to list off these items to the Colossian believers of things that ought not be a part of their life, things that are in contrast to the life of Christ. And then after this, he tells us things that we ought to put on, things that are in communion with the behavior and the virtue of Jesus. Then he goes on to give some very specific instructions to wives, to husbands, to children, to servants and masters before he concludes his letter with a request for prayer and final greetings. Now, if we were going to give every verse of Colossians that we've yet to cover, the time and the teaching it deserves, we would have to make this six-week series, probably a six-month series. And thus today, I'm gonna focus on a small passage of scripture that I can faithfully unpack rather than going line by line and merely going an inch deep. Now, here's the deal. As much as I would love to delve into verse 18 that talks about wives submit to your husbands, like, oh man, I, oh, I've got so much to say about that. Um, I mean, listen, I love walking through a minefield as much as anybody else, but I'm gonna save that for when Pastor Matt gets back. So if you do me a favor, when he gets through the door, be like, hey, so glad you're back. Craig said you were gonna talk all about this verse, wives submit to your husbands and what it means and how it applies. And um, so anyways, just like, just please do that for me. Cause when I read that, I was like, you left me with that. Thanks a pant load, bruh. So luckily I'm only gonna bite off what I can faithfully chew and will, will allow me to stay married. So we're going to start by looking at verse 12 in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14 say this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, before Paul even dives into this list of virtues and these qualities and characteristics of Jesus, he begins with an identifier as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul is telling this group of believers in Colossae that if they are in Christ, their lives will reflect this truth. In essence, this list of characteristics, it's not simply humankind's best practices. It's not, if you wanna be good citizens, do these things. They're not recommendations, but rather these things ought to and must be evident in the lives of these believers and in us today if we claim to be in Christ. So it's in that spirit, I wanna look at these characteristics this morning and challenge you and I to ask the question, is my life marked by these virtues? Do these things emit from the life that I live? The first of which are compassionate hearts and kindness. Am I compassionate and kind? 
The expositor's Bible commentary that I was using when I was doing this study, I think it, it appealed specifically to me because I'm an eighth grade history teacher and I love primary sources. And this was written back in the 1880s. So it has this beautiful wording and it says this about Christian compassion. It is the most often needed for the sea of sorrow stretches so widely that nothing less than a universal compassion can arch it over as with the blue of heaven. Every man would seem in some respect deserving of and needing sympathy, meaning compassion, if his whole heart and history could be laid bare. Such compassion is difficult to achieve for its healing streams are dammed back by many obstructions of inattention and occupation and dried up by the fierce heat of selfishness. I want to repeat that last line. Such compassion is difficult to achieve, for its healing streams are dammed back by many obstructions of inattention and occupation, and dried up by the fierce heat of selfishness. Now, it strikes me, as I mentioned, these words were written in the 1880s, talking about our occupation and our selfishness. And this is even before the invention of the automobile, the airplane, highways and interstates, phones, computers, internet, email, cell phones, and every other gadget intended to make us more productive. Even before this high-tech age of time is money and production and addiction to productivity, these writers are saying, we're selfish. We're inattentive. We're preoccupied. How often do I lack compassion and kindness because I'm simply far too busy or consumed with my own life? My dad has been in uh, youth ministry and, and pastoral ministry for my life plus several years, and um, he told me this story once from a, uh, a friend of his who was a camp speaker. And the speaker had a, had a young girl come up to him named Kim, and she wanted to tell this uh, story. It's a true story. Her name, was, her name was Kim. She was a cheerleader at her high school. She'd been attending there for you know, several years. Really popular, beautiful girl, just had everything going for her. And then at some point during the year, she began to feel just, just really tired, um, just felt ill, just didn't, didn't feel right. Something was off. And so family takes her to the doctor, they do blood tests, and they sit Kim and her parents down, and they say, Kim, we have bad news, you have leukemia. And there is treatment, it's called chemotherapy, but here's what's going to happen. It's going to make you very, very sick, and it's going to make you feel like you want to die. It's, it's just going to be really difficult, and you're, you're going to lose your hair. Um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep you alive. So, of course, they, they choose treatment. Kim goes through chemotherapy, radiation. She loses her hair. She has to stay home from school for several months. And then at one point, she's, she's healthy enough to return to school. And so they go pick out this, this you know, most beautiful blonde wig they can find to simulate the hair she had. And, and she goes back to school and she, she goes to lunch. And for some reason, instead of going and sitting with the friends that she'd sat by for, for probably her entire high school career, she just decides to look around and she sees this girl sitting by herself. And so Kim does something she, she'd never done before. She just goes and sits by her. And she says, hey, do you mind if I sit by you? And the girl just seemed 
almost bothered and said, why, why do you want to do that? She said, well, I, I, I don't think I'd seen you before, and I just thought maybe you could use a friend. I thought maybe you were new. And so she sat down with this girl and began to just ask questions, you know, where, where are you from, and, you know, what do you like to do, and, you know, she found out that this girl had actually been at this school as long as Kim had, and she gets all these one-word answers, doesn't seem very interested in really having a conversation with Kim, and um, Kim goes to excuse herself at the end of lunch, she says, well, it was nice talking to you, kind of feeling maybe a little defeated, like it wasn't exactly a productive or fruitful conversation. And, and this girl, she says, Kim, will you wait a second? She says, well, sure. And this girl pulls, this is a true story, she pulls a bottle of pills out of, her, out of her backpack, and she said, Kim, I've been going here for years. You're the first person that's ever sat at a lunch table with me or has talked to me or has asked me about my life. And... I had decided that I was going to take these pills and I, I wanted to end my life. But if it's okay with you, I don't think I'm going to do that because I think I have a friend. And Kim, of course, absolutely. I'm so glad you, you told me. And Kim, when she was at this, at this camp, this Christian summer camp, she, she tells this camp speaker who relayed the story to my, to my dad, she said, I can't believe that it took me going through cancer for my eyes to be opened and to see the world around me. Kim wasn't evil. She wasn't a, a, a vain, malicious. She wasn't a bully that was humbled and had her eyes open. She was just simply consumed with, with her life like most high school students are. But the question for us is who is in your world that you're not aware of today? Somebody that you work with, somebody that's in the same friend group, your kids go to school together that may only need the smallest glimmer, the smallest amount of compassion or kindness for them to realize that the love of God is real. Do we have compassionate hearts and kindness? Secondly, are we humble and meek? Now, these two qualities are probably the least attractive out of society today. Because no matter what you believe, Christian or not, we can all talk about the need for service and kindness right, and, and charity, but when we start talking about humility and meekness, gentleness, things start to get a little unattractive for us. Now, I'm not about to go on a, on a political rant this morning. If I'm not going to talk about wives submitting to husbands, I'm sure as heck not going to that minefield of, of politics, okay? But in the hyper-politicized world we live in, when was the last time that a candidate from any side was promoted because of their humility or their gentleness. That, that's not a yard sign. You know, Smith, they're gentle. Okay? <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a great commercial that's going to get a bunch of clicks. You know, hey, vote Williams. They're very humble. Okay? Now, I'm not going to argue with anyone for the need to have people in office who will boldly confront corruption or who will fight for the rights 
of the people they represent. But it is far more likely these days to see people, even those who claim Christ, who wave that banner, praised for their harshness or their domination of their opponents rather than for their civility or decency. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's his humility, his gentleness that drew people. Now, did Jesus confront? Was he bold and brave? You bet he was. I bet it stung when Peter heard Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God. The Pharisees that he confronted, the religious, the overly zealous who had turned his father's house into a den of thieves, they met the strength and sometimes even the, dare I say, violence or or at least the vigor of Jesus. We could say that his zeal for his father's house He was not afraid to show that. And yet, what does the Bible say? It's by his kindness that we are led to repentance. No one has ever been nagged or shamed or proven to be evil or an idiot who has then changed their mind and said, you know what, you're right. Who has ever gone on Facebook and said, I came here with a lot of rage and something to say, but I started reading and that stuff made a lot of sense. You know what? And, and I changed my mind. I, I am of a different opinion now. You are correct. <laughs> like, Your Honor, I rest my case. That doesn't happen. When we come to an issue or a person or whatever it may be, even with the purest of motives, when our strategy is rage and malice and wrath and hate, we only build the wall further as opposed to what Jesus did, who again is strong and bold and yet says, come to me, I am humble and gentle in heart. I'm not like the empire. I'm not like Rome. I'm not going to say, submit, convert, or die. But I'm going to die in order that you may live. Now, I think we struggle with humility and meekness for two reasons. First, we assume that humility and meekness will not be enough to reach our goals or accomplish God's will, that essentially desperate times call for desperate measures. The argument here is that humility and meekness worked in a past age when civility reigned. But things are different now, Craig. We gotta fight fire with fire. Yet look what Paul says to Timothy in the first century, in the age of Rome, which was far from civil, about his opponents. He says this in 2 Timothy 2, and the Lord's servant must be, not should be or might be, but must be, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. You know, here's what happens when we walk into an arena with rage and malice and condescension and arrogance. We can no longer teach people because guess what? They're not listening. So Paul says, Timothy, you gotta be, you gotta be gentle. You gotta be kind and loving because then you can teach them. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Paul didn't give Timothy this false version of the world in which he said, hey, as long as you love the Lord, as long as you preach the truth, everyone, man, they'll listen. They'll be civil. They won't give you any problems. We'll hold hands and sing kumbaya. No, he tells them the world can be brutal, Timothy. He tells him you will have opponents. And even what is more is he even says, and there will be a time to correct them. He says there will be a time when you will need to correct them. You will need to confront But what does he say to do? He says, do so with kindness and gentleness, leaving the door open for God to lead them to repentance. As I said earlier, no one has been led to repentance by being proven that they're an idiot, or that they're truly wrong about something. Secondly, we greatly misunderstand what humility and meekness truly are. C.S. Lewis spoke of humility in the book Mere Christianity when he said, do not imagine that if you meet, I'm sorry. I got into eighth grade U.S. history classroom time when, you know, it engages them to use accents. You guys don't need that. I'll, just, I'll play it straight. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud And a biggish step too, at least nothing, whatever can be done before it. And if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. A humble person is not thinking about being humble. They're just not thinking about themselves. They're too focused on the needs of others. I'm convicted of this. I like to think that I'm a very friendly, um, you know, loving person, and yet sometimes I think, you know what, when I get into a conversation with someone, do I often ask them about their life and their family and, and their work and their kids and just and their spiritual life and what's going on in their lives, or am I just sort of waiting on them to ask me about mine? And we might think like, that's a, that's a very simple, easy thing. But you, I guarantee, can think of those people that, you know what, they're always asking me about me. They're always so interested in, in my life and how loving and how others focused do those people stand out to be. And that's what Jesus was like. Are we compassionate and kind? Are we humble and meek? And third, are we patient and forgiving? Let's just skip that one. I'm just kidding. Every parent was like, amen, amen. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to work on that. I'm super patient with all my kids. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, put on then patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Isn't it interesting that as this list goes on, it's as if the Bible knows what life is like, It's as if the Bible knows, hey, here are the things you're going to suck at, struggle at, sorry. 
Went back to eighth grade classroom. Yeah, I'm a little aggressive with them sometimes. Here are the things you're going to stink at. That's why I'm writing them down for you. In fact, go ahead, just raise your hand or go ahead and like take, take the mic from me. Okay, if you could say, man, I am knocking it out of the park on patience and forgiving other people. I'm, just, I'm not going to lie. Like, it's just, it's so easy. I just want to teach everybody how to do it. Nobody, right? I'm not even going to wait for responses because I know that ain't true. It is not innate when we come into the world as fallen human beings to be patient and to forgive other people. And notice that it says nothing about forgiving only when someone acknowledges their sin and asks for forgiveness. It's not forgive them when they recognize they're an idiot. It just says forgive. Even if that person to their dying day never asks for your forgiveness, never recognizes that they were in the wrong, never shows any amount of remorse or repentance. Now, luckily, this isn't a problem uh, at my home because Gloria, you know, just She's, she's always very quick to acknowledge when she's wrong and, and swiftly comes to ask for uh, my forgiveness. Hold on, I read that wrong. Um, luckily, Gloria always forgives Craig when he said something stupid um, because he thought it was a good time to be funny. Because humor covers a multitude of sins, does it not? Right, husbands? It's just like, hey, I know you're a little upset with me, but let's diffuse the situation with a joke. Let's laugh it off. And my wife's like, no, I'm not laughing. <laughs> I, heard, I, heard, I just heard some women go, mmm. <laughs> okay. That's how I know we're preaching. All right. Now, joking aside, we are not naturally patient and forgiving people. When was the last time that a child had to be taught, here's how to be impatient? When was the last time you had to set a child down and say, here's how you hold a grudge when someone does you wrong? My boys, their latest knack on this is they will say, if you don't give me that toy, you're not my brother. Like, bro, you are five and three, and you are holding your brotherhood hostage for a flipping piece of plastic that's going to go into the abyss of the couch cushions in minutes? Y'all are cold. Like, I, I don't know. Is this on TV? Do you learn this somewhere? Like, no one taught them this. We didn't sit them down and say, hey, threaten, threaten him that he's not going to be your brother. That'll work. Who taught them this stuff? We come into the world that the expectation that everything revolves around us, and heaven forbid we should ever have to wait. And it's because of this egocentrality that we are not only impatient but unforgiving when someone or something tries to take our place at the center of all things. Now, Paul illustrates perfectly this intersection of patience and forgiveness in 1 Timothy 1 when he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am what? The foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul recognized he had no business being chosen or being saved by God. He states that he was the foremost sinner. He's telling everyone around him, look, it's not a competition, but if it was, I promise I'd win. None of you have sinned like I have. He acknowledges there's nothing good in him that would make him attractive to God's grace. He's not a spiritual catch. God is not fortunate that Paul signed his letter of intent to play for Christ University. Rather, it's God's perfect patience and mercy that saved Paul. When you and I struggle to be patient with others, when we find it impossible to forgive, especially when they haven't asked for it, may we ask ourselves just how patient and forgiving has God been with me? How much daily grace does he have to give me? How much does God have to choose, frankly, to forget that I have done against him and give me grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? The third time I have to tell my son the same thing, I get annoyed, I get frustrated. Buddy, I've told you this before, you cannot do this. And yet I think 36 years times 365 days. How many times have I had to come to God and thank God that he hasn't said, buddy, you, you get one more. One more, and then that's, that's it. No, his grace is new every day. Who are we to withhold that same grace and forgiveness from others? Are we compassionate and kind? Are we humble and meek? Are we patient and forgiving? And lastly, Colossians 3.14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony is love over all that I do. The expositor's commentary that I read from earlier gives us this this incredible insight about this verse. They say, above all these does not mean besides or more important than, but is clearly used in its simplest local sense as equivalent to over and thus carries on the metaphor of the dress. Over the other garments is to be put the silken sash or girdle of love. Don't you love a good girdle mention in a Sunday sermon? Bless God. Man. Next thing you know, we're going to be talking about the bosom of Abraham. All right. Which will brace and confine all the rest into a unity. In other words, love is not more essential than compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, or forgiveness, but rather love is over all these things and it's woven into all of these qualities of Christ, making them perfect. In essence, without love, these other virtues would be incomplete. You've all heard it before. It's probably the most famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13, but we often forget the context of it. Paul is writing the Corinthians and he's teaching them about spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 14, but he takes this abrupt stop in 13 
to instruct these people that these giftings that I'm telling you to seek after that are useful, that will reach the lost, if you don't have love woven into all that you do, these gifts are worthless. They're meaningless. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Borrowing once more from the expositors has this beautiful imagery of love when it says, let love come into the heart and knit a man to the poor creature whom he had only pitied before or to the enemy who he had at the most been able with an effort to forgive. And it lifts these other emotions into a nobler life. He who pities may not love, but he who loves cannot but pity. And that compassion will flow with a deeper current and be of a purer quality than the shrunken stream which does not rise from that higher source. You should bow your heads with me this morning. What do you think of when you hear the words, the family of God? Do you think about people in this room, your city church family? Do you think about the numerous families and members and elders and deacons of maybe the church you grew up in or, or the kind of the traditional Christian church of America? Do you think about the global body of believers, those who claim Christ? Because the Bible tells us the family of God is not just those who call themselves Christians or hold membership to a church or denomination. It is those who have been raised with Christ who are seeking the things above, who by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body and who are putting on the character and virtues of Christ. And hear me, church, we're never, ever going to graduate or, or, or arrive with these things perfectly. Paul says himself in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Are you pressing on this morning? Is the character of Christ what you, by the Spirit's help, strive to reflect? Does it consume your thoughts? Is it what you think about when you rise and go through your day and lay down? Is it even a blip on your radar? Now, I wanna be honest with you. I told you you'd be able to relate, and I wasn't just joking. I'm not always striving to resemble Jesus. Many times I'm too caught up in my own life to see the pain of others. My wife's in this room. Sometimes I'm too busy with my own life to think about what's my wife going through? What can I do to serve her? 
I'm ashamed to say there's some days where I get to the end of the day and I go, I didn't even ask my wife how her day was because I'm too consumed with myself. Many times I do, I do lack humility and think that I somehow have a monopoly on right opinions. I could be so fired up about things and what I believe to be true that I can become arrogant and condescending and see people instead of differing in opinion as somehow unintelligent. They don't know what they're talking about. How dare I? What makes me think that I'm so right? Many times I do place myself in the center of the universe and I lack patience and forgiveness for others. How many times am I just in a rush to get somewhere and I think that somehow I deserve to get there on time, but nobody else? I mean, it might sound silly, but again, it's a reflection of my heart and what I believe about where I am in this whole universe. Am I at the center of it all? Does everything revolve around me? Or does it revolve around Christ? Now, the good news this morning is that the Bible is clear. We will not do this on our own. And we don't have to, thank God. Paul even says, I have no righteousness of my own, but a righteousness of the Holy Spirit. He tells us to put to death, therefore, the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Jesus does not expect you to go out of here and grin and bear it and just work out your salvation with effort. He says, no, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The Beatitudes say, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you can confess, Lord, I don't have what it takes. I'm empty, I'm poor. I got nothing left. I'm not good on my own. But Jesus, I just want to be like you. I want to resemble you. I want to be raised to life in you. I want to be in communion with you. And I just want to ask, if you're like me and you want to put on the character of Christ and truly count yourself part of the family of God, not because you grew up in church, not because you signed a card, not because you know the right people or know how to dress the right way or stand, kneel, sit, but you say, I want to be a part of the family of God because I want to be in Christ and like Christ. And you would say, hey, I want more of that. I need help. Will you just raise your hand wherever you are? No one's looking around. I just want to pray for you. That's it. I just want to pray for you. Jesus, will you help us? Myself, every person raising their hand, physically or in their hearts this morning, will you help us, Lord? Lord, you tell us in Psalm 51, Lord, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So Lord, we just come to you today with a broken spirit, just recognizing that, Lord, we have nothing on our own. We are like Paul, Lord. We are the foremost of sinners. We are not a gift to you. We didn't choose you. You chose us. While we were still sinners, you died for us. So Jesus, we come before you just confessing we need you. Will you help us to resemble you, not to just make all the right actions and words and thoughts or this is not about being perfect or legalistic or a Pharisee. This is about, Lord, being in you 
being raised to life, coming to you and you doing the work. Lord, help us to abide and rest knowing the Lord, it is your Holy Spirit that does the work in us. And if we want more of Jesus, I can think of nothing better than to share in the Lord's Supper this morning. If you have those elements, you can go ahead and begin to prepare them. So why, why does Jesus offer the, the bread and the wine that night of his, of his burial? It is to invite these disciples to be in him, to share in his body, in his blood, reminding them, this is my body. It will be broken and then put back together. This is my blood, and it will be poured out and shed for you. And he invites us to do the same today. Anytime I get to lead communion, I always, I always use this illustration. The body and the blood of Jesus is the most costly thing that the world has ever known. It is the forgiveness of any sin that's ever been committed, that will be committed, and that you will ever commit in your life. That is how powerful the blood is. Can you put a price on that? It is the most costly meal you and I will ever partake of in our lives. And yet here's the offer of Jesus. He says, this meal, my body, my blood, it's more expensive than you could ever possibly imagine. And yet, here for you. Don't try to pay for it. Don't even dare try to bring your good works or your money or your titles or your religion. Don't even try. You'll never even come close, but it's here. I just want you to have it. Most expensive gift that humanity's ever known, and we get it for free. That is communion. That is the body and the blood of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you say, I want that, maybe you can't even put words to it, but you say, I need Jesus. You are welcome to take communion with us today. If you're not there yet, if you're not ready, you have questions, that's fine. You come talk to us. Man, we will walk with you. There's no pressure. But if you say, I want more of Jesus, I want you to take this little wafer. I want you to go ahead and take it right now. And let us remember the body of Christ that was broken so that we may be made whole. What you take together today. And this cup, this tiny bit of juice, represents the blood of Jesus, which you might think, I don't, it, it could cover other sins, but, but not mine. How dare you? How dare you think that the blood of Jesus is somehow unequal to the task of washing your deepest, darkest, dirtiest sin away? However dirty you feel like you may be, and maybe it's recent. Maybe you come into this place and you feel 
like a hypocrite. You feel guilty. You think, I don't even deserve to be in here. Craig, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I struggled with. I'm a hypocrite. I shouldn't even be in here. I'm telling you today, if you were willing to accept this free gift, again, don't try to earn it. Don't you dare try to pay for this with your good deeds or your ability to grin and bear it and be holy. Don't you dare. Do you say, Jesus, I accept. I can't do this. And I need you this morning. And you are welcome to take the cup. Let us take this together. And wherever you are, won't you take 30 seconds and just reflect on the body and the blood of Christ and thank him wherever you are. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your body and for your blood. Lord, as we walk out of here today, may we not walk out of here in our own efforts. We've already proven, Lord, that we don't have what it takes. But instead, Lord, may we just confess we are poor in spirit. But blessed are they that are poor in spirit for you fill us, Lord God. We thank you for this meal, Jesus. We don't even dare try to pay for it, but we thank you for it. Amen. Well, City Church, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I know it's a, you know, it's a holiday weekend. I know you could have easily, um, you know, skipped, gone somewhere, gained some rest. But I, I pray that, again, just the Lord's words would, would stay with you, not mine, but what the Lord has done uh, in this place. A couple things for you. If you filled out the For Our City Commitment card, feel free to drop that off in the giving boxes. There's one down here and one up there. Or you can bring it to one of the Staff members, if you got questions about some of the needs that we have going into this new building, feel free to do that. Also, if you're a first-time guest or you haven't ever received um, just a free gift that's in the welcome area, go ahead and do that. Just right across the lobby. Before you leave, just stop by just for a few seconds. Get that t-shirt, shake hands. Let us just say thank you for being here. And then lastly, if you have a, uh, a need or you just would like to talk or pray with someone, we'll have uh, prayer team members, elders, any staff members are going to go ahead and make their way down. Please don't leave here without just stopping by to have someone pray with you. And let's go ahead and stand all over this place as we say our mission statement and let's dedicate ourselves as the family of God to go live it out wherever you are. Love you guys. Have a great day. Been without it for so long. Forgot what it feels like. Been in the darkness.